welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to Into the Legal Void, Asteroid Mining and the Second Space Age, an episode of the Environmental Law Institute's People, Places, Planet podcast. My name is Cynthia Harris, staff attorney and director of tribal programs at the Environmental Law Institute, where we make the law work for people, places, and the planet. Now, let's think about that tagline for a moment. By places and planet, does that necessarily mean the planet Earth? We're not exactly short-sighted here at ELI. After millennia of humankind exploiting terrestrial resources, national governments and private enterprises alike are eyeing the skies. There's evidence of asteroids containing precious mineral. Ice on the moon can be extracted to generate drinking water, oxygen, hydrogen for rocket fuel, and helium-3 as fuel for fusion reactions. Mars has useful minerals, ice, and perhaps even liquid water. This all requires mining and industrial and pollution heavy activity, which raises a very important question for lawyers, environmentalists, and policymakers. If activities impacting the environment are being carried out in outer space, what law applies? Does any law apply? Or is it all just a legal void? Helping us navigate that particular spaceship into the unknown are today's very special dare I say stellar, yes. Scott Anderson and Julie LaManna, both attorneys at Hogan Levels, Denver office. Scott is a partner and recently headed the firm's energy and natural resources industry sector. He's currently the vice president of the Rocky Mountain Mineral Foundation. Julia is an associate also at Hogan Levels, advising clients in energy and natural resources. The two are pioneering the firm's space law practice and have authored or co-authored articles and other pieces on space mining, including writing with another attorney, Corey Christensen, a chapter on the subject of space resources for the most recent edition of ELI's own legal treatise, Law of Environmental Protection. Jillian Scott, thank you so much for being with us here today. Thank you for having us, it's a pleasure. Really appreciate the opportunity to chat. Now, I have to ask, how exactly do the two of you get into the field of space law anyhow? So I first got into space law as a summer associate with Hogan Levels in the summer of 2017. I was working in Scott's group, which, as you mentioned, is the Energy and Natural Resources group. Um, And he reached out early in the summer and explained that he and Corey, our our former colleague, uh, were interested in exploring space mining and asked if I would do some research on the topic over the course of the summer. Um, it was one of those summer associate projects that spanned the whole summer, so I kind of chipped away at it and learned a lot because before then I really had no exposure whatsoever to space law. Um, and so by the end of the summer, I had this nice memo that summarized kind of at a high level the law that applies to space mining um, that eventually Scott and Corey were able to turn, turn into a, um, the base for our first space mining publication. Yeah, and it was great to have Julia do that work and, and again, kind of lay the foundation for a lot of the thinking we've done on space mining. You know, our practice is, you know, very extractive industries focused, do a lot of work for oil and gas and mining companies and governments um, as well, working in those areas. And, you know, as a practicing lawyer, you're always kind of looking where things are going, you know, what else is happening in your industry. And we took a look at the activity in outer space at the time 
um, deep space industries and planetary resources were getting a lot of attention as companies really focused on asteroid mining. Uh, and it looked like a natural extension of what we were doing. And we found that you know our, our expertise in mining and getting mining projects up and developed and financed translates really well into outer space. And mining companies often work in difficult jurisdictions and conditions and outer space is uh, sort of more of the same. So we're, we're often running uh, with looking at resource development in outer space. I have to say, I'm pretty jealous of your summer uh, experience. I, I wish I'd had something like that. I ended up working on pesticides and toxic resources, which is important, but this sounds much more exciting, I have to admit. And really, when you're talking about outer space, uh, Tanya, what you said, Scott, there's so much to explore, you know, literally, figuratively, legally. And you, you'd mentioned about your focus on extractive industries. So I like to focus on commercial mining activities and what implications are for the environment. So uh, let's look at it from the beginning. So if I'm a commercial enterprise and I have, I actually have the financial backing and I have the technological know-how and I want to launch, if you'll forgive the pun, a space mining concern. Now, now, first of all, you mentioned some of the earlier players. Why would I be into this type of business in the first place? What's in it for me? I think there are a lot of reasons to get into space mining. Some people think that it's our best chance at long-term survival as a species. Um, and regardless of whether you agree with that view, I think it's really compelling that space mining um, would vastly expand our ability to explore and understand space. So one limitation of space travel as we've known it um, is that it takes an enormous amount of energy to get from Earth's surface to Earth's orbit, Earth's orbit, excuse me, because we have to break free of Earth's gravitational pull. Um, so much so that there's sort of a famous saying that once you're in Earth's orbit, you're halfway to anywhere. Um, and space mining really has the potential to change that limitation by providing a source of resources in space for use in space. So for example, if a company is able to mine ice from the moon and convert that ice to fuel, it can set itself up as a sort of gas station in space for its own uh, and other space ventures. Um, and mining water and other materials would of course be necessary for um, any kind of sustainable space colony. So I think there's lots to be excited about, excited about um, and lots of opportunities. And you mentioned, again, some of the earlier players. Now, what's the competition now? I hear, um, of course, you have Elon Musk, we have Blue Origin. I mean, who are the big players and prospective players that you keep an eye on right now? Yeah, it's a really interesting time. And we're again, we're maybe not quite at the inflection point, a little bit past it. But things have really changed dramatically over the past decade. Um, historically, you know, from the very from the launch of Sputnik forward, the players were big governments, you know, mainly the United States and Russia for a lot of years. And so these programs were governmentally funded, um, and that's what put a man on the moon. But now there are a bunch of private parties who are active in outer space. And again, a lot of the commercialization of outer space is the use of satellite and satellite systems in near-Earth orbit. Uh, and we're looking for resource development kind of above and beyond that. Uh, and again, if you mentioned, you know, companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic that have gotten a lot of attention. But there are a number of other uh, smaller companies that are really active in the area. Uh, you know, Moon Express is looking to develop scalable robotic spacecraft. And again, we've, you know, the sort of human missions in outer space get a lot of attention. 
a lot of the work we're talking about for resource development is going to be done by robots, and Moon Express is looking to you know develop that technology. Uh, iSpace, a, a Japanese uh, company that has offices in Denver and Luxembourg, uh, is also doing a lot of moon exploration, and actually has a contract with NASA to bring back samples of regolith from the moon and deliver it to NASA. Um, so that's a commercial enterprise, a private enterprise that's uh, contracting with governments. Um, there's an asteroid mining corporation in the UK uh, that is really looking, uh, it's primarily developing satellites, but the interesting thing is it plans to do the manufacturing in space rather than put the satellite on Earth and put it up into space, which again is going to require the kind of resources and fueling uh, that Julia was talking about. Uh, and then the other big players in the area are going to be uh, you know, the people who sell the picks and shovels, uh, the service providers who provide supply chain. And, you know, here in Denver, where we're based, you know, some of the folks who made the most money in the Colorado gold rush in the middle of the 19th century wasn't the miners. Uh, it was the folks who sold the picks and shovels, the folks who sold supplies to underpin the mining industry. And there are a whole host of service providers active in the area. Uh, one, again, Colorado-based that was really interesting. Uh, we had a meeting with them, which is United Launch Alliance. And I remember them saying in the course of the meeting, like, we're just a transportation company. Now, for those of us who sort of romanticize outer space a bit, they're not just a transportation company because they're putting, you know, material into outer space. But there's, a, there's just a commercial underpinning to this, and there's a lot of activity uh, in the area. Um, so much so that the Colorado School of Mines has set up a program where you can get a PhD in resource development in outer space. And those engineering firms are you know, doing the engineering that's required to implement and actually develop uh, resources in outer space in the moon, on Mars, and among the asteroids. And so I really love how you made the picks and shovels comparison because I was thinking when you were talking earlier about mining here on Earth, but is the outer space kind of like the Wild West or the gold rush or the water rush and to tag up what Julie said earlier? Um, is it the Wild West up there or is there a, even a basic legal framework? Yeah, there, there is a basic legal framework. So I'd say it's not, it's not quite the Wild West. Um, so the, the starting point for international space law is the Outer Space Treaty of 1967. It's um, sometimes referred to as the Constitution of Space Law. It's been signed and ratified by over 100 countries, including the U.S. Um, much of the treaty deals with preserving space for peaceful purposes and preventing any single nation from gaining a military advantage in space. So, for example, it prohibits placing nuclear weapons in space. Um, when it comes to space research management and development, though, um, it's not particularly clear. It doesn't directly address space resource extraction and doesn't provide a clear statement that that sort of activity is authorized or unauthorized under its terms. Um, so there are two key provisions that bear on this question of whether the treaty permits space resource development. Um, the first is that the treaty assures all nations with a right of free access to and use of celestial bodies, but at the same time, a different provision prohibits appropriation or national appropriation, a national ownership, excuse me, of those celestial bodies. The question for commercial space miners becomes, can private entities own resources that have been extracted from the celestial body without any nation owning the body itself? Um, and the prevailing answer to this question is yes. The Outer Space Treaty doesn't prohibit the development and ownership of extracted resources, even if it doesn't create an express right 
to undertake those activities. That's the view of the International Institute of Space Law um, and certainly of the US and most, if not all, major space-faring nations, to my knowledge. Um, and the thinking is that because the treaty includes a right of free use of celestial bodies, that word use implies that space resources can be developed and used. Um, and likewise, appropriation of an area isn't necessary to extract resources from it um, in the same way that you can fish in the high seas, even though no individual country has jurisdiction there. Um, another provision that's generated significant debate from the treaty is the statement that the exploration and use of space shall be carried out for the benefit and in the interests of all countries and shall be the province of all mankind. So one interpretation of that language is that all nations sort of regardless of their participation in the exploitation process have some economic benefit interest in the space resource, um, the space resources that are developed um, and are entitled to some sort of royalty that could be pay payable in cash or perhaps in kind. Um, but the US and others have taken the position that the clause just reiterates the right of free access articulated in Article 1. And it's also significant that this language about um, you know, the benefit and the interests of all countries is different and arguably less expansive than language included in the Moon Treaty of 1979 that, des that describes space as the common heritage of mankind. That phrase is also used in the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea in reference to the deep seabed, uh, where it's been interpreted to mean that all nations sort of share in the economic benefit of exploitation of the deep seabed, even if not involved in the actual exploitation. But that said, um, you know, the Moon Treaty is largely at this point regarded as obsolete because it's been signed by fewer than 20 countries. The U.S. hasn't signed it, nor have other space-faring nations. Um, and the use of this language about the common heritage of mankind and the legal implications that arise from that language may have dampened more widespread acceptance of the treaty. Um, and, and one more piece that I'll just mention briefly before turning it over to Scott is um, the Hague International Space Resources Governance Working Group in 2019 prepared and adopted a set of building blocks that could be used to create an international regulatory framework governing space resources development. And I just wanted to quickly highlight two of the principles that that document lays out. The first is that it suggests, suggests that the international framework should ensure that private property rights over space resources can indeed be acquired. and proposes that that be done through domestic legis legislation or international agreements. Um, and the other is that it, it addresses this question of sharing of benefits arising from the development of space resources and specifically states that the international framework shouldn't require a compulsory, a compulsory mon monetary benefit sharing framework as under the law of the sea um, and instead contemplates sharing things like development of space science and technology, cooperation and contribution to education and training, exchange of information and the like. Um, so that gives you a bit of a background on the international on the international side. And with that, I'll turn it over to Scott. Yeah, I think, as you can see, there's this structure uh, that becomes more and more specific over time. And as Julia said, the Outer Space Treaty really provided the very broad framework, and and again, similar to our, you know, the U.S. Constitution, a constitutional structure that lays out key concepts. One of the key ones is this idea of non-appropriation. You know, uh, a a nation state can't show up in outer space, uh, put a flag in the ground, and declare ownership 
of a celestial body, whether it's the moon, an asteroid, um, or Mars or whatever. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can't use the resources. And in fact, uh, you know, the, the astronauts brought a lot of rocks back from the moon and they've been used and studied. So there is that idea of use as separated from appropriation or ownership that's really fundamental. And that's where a lot of this conversation about resources and development in outer space takes place. And the, the Moon Treaty, again, arguably took a slightly different view with this idea of the common heritage of mankind, picking up language from the law of the sea, uh, but that hasn't been well received. And most governments that are active uh, in outer space have taken the view that you can, you can uh, use materials in outer space for commercial purposes. Um, and one of the things, you know, mining companies, when they're thinking about doing a mining project on Earth, they really want to know some key things like, you know, security of tenure. You know, do I have the right to develop where I want to develop? Uh, how secure is my right to do that? Um, what's the fiscal regime? You know, what are the costs that I'm going to have to pay for that right? You know, can I get financing? Is this a bankable project? And if I have some sort of an agreement, is it an enforceable agreement? What rights do I have to make sure that, you know, my very expensive investment will be recouped and I'll have whatever rights I have? And what what the development of law in this area is really chasing is trying to provide a framework that gives investors in outer space that kind of comfort. Um, and in addition to uh, the Outer Space Treaty and some related treaties, uh, you know, the Hague building blocks are really, you know, talking about what a more extensive outer space treaty might look like or how you might develop that in more detail. Part of the trick is the thing about treaties is they need to be signed by folks who want to be bound by them um, to become, you know, kind of enforceable international law as a treaty. And the idea of negotiating a new outer space treaty may be just a bridge too far. It may be too complicated to get everybody to sign on. Uh, but the other part about international law is international law can develop by custom. People talk about customary international law, where international actors, nation states, have decided by custom that there are certain rules that apply. You know, the law of the sea is a very good example. The United States is not a signatory uh, to the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, but largely acts as if it's uh, governed by the law of the sea and generally complies with the broad principles, um, but not a signatory. So arguably, uh, the law of the sea is, at least the major portions of it, have become a convention that applies pretty universally. So that brings us to the Artemis Accords. Uh, a recent, relatively recent initiative um, from the United States. Uh, and as you know, the Artemis program is designed, among other things, uh, to put uh, humans on the moon uh, in the long run and establish a permanent moon base. And the Artemis Accords are a series of bilateral agreements between the United States and other space-faring nations. Uh, and we'll talk later on about some of the details, but it does adopt this fundamental principle that you can develop resources in outer space. Um, there's an executive order that President Trump issued that explicitly rejects the Moon Treaty, and that's sort of there by implication in the Artemis Accords. Um, the original signatories, the United States, Australia, Canada, Japan, Luxembourg, Italy, uh, United Arab Emirates, and the United Kingdom. Um, and again, United Arab Emirates are one of those nations that's really devoting a lot of uh, resources and capital to developing a space program and becoming a launch center. Uh, more recently, signatories include Ukraine, South Korea, New Zealand, and Brazil. Uh, Brazil's the most recent one. But it's a really interesting idea um, because it may be difficult to get a global 
uh, outer new outer space treaty signed by 100 countries is evidence what happened with the moon treaty where less than 20 signed. Um, but the idea is by using the Artemis Accords and these bilateral agreements, you start to build uh, customary international law. And a number of countries have agreed to be bound by these principles. Again, fairly high level, but a little bit more detailed uh, than in the Outer Space Treaty. Um, significantly, neither Russia nor China have signed the Artemis Accords. And the Russian Space Agency have, has sort of uh, disclaimed any interest in adopting um, the United States approach to the Artemis Accords. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out over time. But again, it's that push down to a level of detail that allows um, customary international law to start to be built up. And the last piece, you know, Cindy, just to go back to your original question was, um, you know, is, is there any law or is this the Wild West? Well, even in the Wild West, even uh, when mining was being developed without uh, the passage of general mining laws, uh, miners entered into agreements and created mining districts that had a set of rules that applied. So there's this impulse toward order that even when there's not a well-established body of law, uh, people will start to put those um, agreements into place and govern themselves. And that may be kind of the pathway we're, we're headed down with things like the Artemis Accords and other agreements along the way. I have to laugh, Scott, because we're gonna to be touching on that idea of uh, self-governing principles a bit later. But as, as far as the Artemis Accords, Go. Do they put a bit more uh, meat on the bone, so to speak, when it comes to the extraction and ownership of resources? Um, and is it, does this only apply again to nation states, or does it start to address commercial activities? Well, one of the critical things in the Outer Space Treaty, uh, and again, a so a fundamental principle of international law, is that when private parties go into outer space, they do so under the supervision and regulation of a state of a government. So you can't be free of governmental oversight and just go plunging off into outer space without um, being uh, subject to that regulation. Um, so as a result, everybody falls within some legal framework and all the signatories to the Outer Space Treaty agree that, that nation states will supervise any activities in outer space, even if they're conducted by private parties. Um, so as a result, uh, this, the, if people are getting launched from uh, a country that's a signatory to the Artemis Accords, um, they'll be subject to uh, those uh, agreements as they conduct their activities in outer space. Are there any specific provisions that you've, within the Artemis Accords you think are, are particularly relevant for any mining concerns? I understand there's development of safety zones. Would that be one example? Yeah, that's the perfect example. And it's funny, they put it under the rubric of deconfliction, which I wasn't didn't even know that was a word until I read it in there. But, um, but it goes back to the idea of security of tenure. And the idea is that uh, all the parties who have signed onto the Artemis Accords, if they set up uh, an extractive process, again, whether it's on the moon or Mars or an asteroid, uh, they'll create an area around that zone that's designed to allow their operation to take place and avoid potential interference from other parties in the area. They'll provide notice to the United Nations about how they've set up their safety zone um, and register it so that everybody knows what's going on. The idea of the safety zone is it's to be very specifically and reasonably designed just to provide protection for operations. So you can't declare you know, a quarter of the moon to be your safety zone. Uh, and it's only temporary. You only keep that safety zone in place 
for so long as you're conducting the operation uh, that it's designed to protect. Um, very similar to the idea, some almost every country that has a mining law has some area that you set aside that allow for exclusive operations from the mine operator. And the safety zone is similar to, but not identical to that concept. Uh, and that's absolutely a, a crucial one. Um, the other one that's really interesting is the sharing of data and technologies. Uh, one thing about technology is everything's supposed to be interoperable among these countries so that you know people can work cooperatively. Uh, but in addition, there's the idea of data sharing. And sometimes mining companies are very anxious about sharing geologic data. Uh, but the idea here is that to, we want this to be cooperative and have information being gathered uh, as part of space resource development to be shared among the signatories to the Artemis Accords. Interesting, when you look at compared to the, the law of the sea, one of the objections that the United States had was a requirement in the convention that got added in fairly late in the game that they were the United States and other countries that were signatory would be required to share technical information about deep sea mining technologies. And at that point, the United States did not want to be that open. So this move towards transparency is uh, an interesting evolution in how we're thinking about cooperative development of resources in uh, interesting environments. And that's an interesting point about interoperability. It makes me think about the development of uh, railroads and also the dawn of the computer era where um, so much progress was made uh, with, through this openness. But I want to turn uh, to a point you made about commercial entities launching from a uh, signatory party to the Artemis Accords, maybe acting under the, I suppose, the supervision of the signatory nation states and this might be a question for Julia I'm curious what domestic law is applicable aside from this international framework what domestic law is applicable here in the US yeah so in November 2015 President Obama signed into law um, a bill called the US commercial space launch competitiveness act and within that bill was the space resource exploration and utilization act of 2015 which authorizes private mining of asteroids and other space resources. Um, but most significantly, the act states that private US citizens and corporations are entitled to the resources they obtain, uh, including the rights to own or sell those resources. Um, and the law is hugely significant in that way because it was the first of its kind in terms of affirming private property rights over space resources. Um, and since then, other nations like Luxembourg and others um, have followed suit with our own domestic legislation affirming that space resources can be privately owned. That brings me to a sort of pragmatic question. So what kind of permits would I need? I mean, if, if I wanted to launch a space mining concern, I assume that there's going to be some amount of red tape uh, after hearing all of this from, from the two of you. So what agencies would I need to work with? I mean, what, what should I be prepared for? Yeah, so consistent with what Scott was talking about, how um, you know any, any launch from the U.S. is going to be subject to the U.S.'s continuing supervision. Um, the U.S. has pretty comprehensive regulations for traditional space activities like launch and reentry, remote sensing, satellite communications. Those regulatory frameworks are generally siloed into different categories and controlled by different federal agencies. So, for example, to launch a spacecraft, a mission has to get a license from the FAA, that's the Federal Aviation Administration, 
um, if, a space, if a spacecraft will transmit satellite communications via spectrum, it'll need a license from the FCC, that's the Federal Communications Commission. Um, and then missions that involve remote sensing of Earth, which is essentially observation of Earth to obtain information about it, requ require a license from NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. That said, for the for mining missions specifically, there's there's some uncertainty about how this process will apply. Um, there's some talk about some form of sort of enhanced payload review to be centered around the FAA, um, but to date, there's no authorization framework that's yet been adopted. So this is a point of uncertainty at this point. Yeah, and Cynthia, the only other thing I'd add is again, for being U.S. centric about this, for the moment, um, you know, because you're always going to need a federal approval uh, for your space launch. NEPA does apply, um, and so you, there will be an, you know an EA or an EIS prepared um, for your launch or for your launch facility to address those issues, and that's a component um, as a result of this kind of federal regulation of space activities in the U.S. Yeah, and, and let's get into those environmental impacts because we're talking about NEPA. I assume that applies here, in, again, in the United States. Now, I'm curious, uh, being here at ELI, of course, what kind of environmental impacts can commercial mining cause on other bodies like asteroids or planets? Now, um, we're going to focus on that because there are other environmental impacts, like from rocket emissions and orbital debris, which is a podcast topic of itself. Apparently, uh, humanity can't go anywhere without causing pollution concerns. But let's say... I have a mining crew and there's concern about contaminating Mars. So strip mining part of Olympus Mons and I kill off a colony of some newly discovered and with my look, adorably furry local critters will ignore the radiation concerns, of course. And what if my equipment destroys Neil Armstrong's footprints on the moon? Sure. Um, so the, the first example that you mentioned would be an example of forward contamination which is contamination of celestial bodies by organic material from Earth. Uh, and the principal concern with this type of contamination is compromising continued scientific study of those celestial bodies and any potential life on them. Uh, and as your example highlights, because space mining sort of necessarily involves contact with celestial bodies, it has the potential to cause forward contamination. So, so for another perhaps less cute example um, than yours, some scientists are concerned with increased traffic to the icy poles of the moon. Uh, and the concern is that that will compromise study of the, of the ice there. And that ice is significant scientifically because it's possible that it accumulated over billions of years and could hold um, a lot of insight as to how the solar system has evolved over time. Um, so the inference of forward contamination, just, just for context, and I won't get into this much, is backward contamination, which is the contamination of Earth by pathogens or biological material from other celestial bodies. Um, and the main concern here is protecting Earth from foreign contaminants as a matter of global safety. And, and to tie the two together, preventing these two types of contamination is referred to as planetary protection. Um, from the legal perspective, the Outer Space Treaty, which is always our starting point for all things space law, includes a general statement that states have to avoid both forward and backward contamination. But as Scott mentioned, it's really broad strokes and doesn't really provide any detail about what that means. Um, so to guide compliance with that general mandate, the Committee on Space Research, otherwise known as COSPAR, 
has developed a planetary protection policy that serves as guidance to nations engaged in space exploration. Um, and that, po that policy, the structure of it is sort of like a sliding scale of recommended protective measures based on one, the degree to which the target body is of interest to understanding life or the process of chem chemical evolution. And two, on the other hand, the likelihood that contamination will occur. So building on that at the, at the domestic level, NASA's um, Office of Planetary Protection has developed policies based on the Coast Bar policy. Um, and some of the measures that you might encounter, that a spacecraft might, might encounter are sterilization requirements, development of flight plans that, that protect planetary bodies of interest, development of plans to protect the Earth from returned extraterrestrial samples, in other words, to prevent against backward contamination. Um, but a key complication for NASA's policies is that it isn't a regulatory agency. And so it doesn't appear to have the authority to require that private space missions that are wholly unaffiliated with it comply with those planetary protection policies. Um, this issue was taken up recently in a report by the NASA Planetary Protection Independent Review Board, um, and they were evaluating how NASA's policies can be improved, particularly in light of increased activity in this area. Um, and the report noted that even though NASA isn't a regulatory agency, it can likely assert some measure of control, control over non-NASA um, missions by tying compliance with planetary protection policies to things like current and future NASA business and support funding, et cetera. Um, but the board also recommended that the federal government work to identify you know, the appropriate agency to implement planetary protection requirements for the private sector. Um, and, and even more recently in December, 2020, the White House released its national strategy for planetary protection. And I'll just mention briefly that one of its key objectives, there are three key objectives and a number of sub-objectives. But one of the key objectives is to, is to work with the private sector, solicit feedback from the private sector, um, and develop guidelines for private sector activities that have the potential um, to implicate planetary protection concerns. Um, so the upshot in this space for me is that there's quite a lot going on. I think the US is trying to keep pace with how thing, quickly things are moving, um, particularly in the private sector. So I, I expect a lot of development in this, in this area in the, in the next coming years. Makes me wonder. Is, so, just to clarify, there's nothing like an environmental impact report required for conducting mining activities or anything similar on a, plant, a different planetary body. Yeah, currently, to my knowledge, no, there's not. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I, I think this is, you know, what Julie just said is interesting and in just how things are evolving because a lot of it's being done by policy and guidance from you know, agencies that are involved in supervising missions and kind of imposing them as a matter of policy and guidance. There is no universal outer space environmental law. There is language about protecting outer space in the Outer Space Treaty. Um, and you know, the Artemis Accords, you know, getting to your, your question about Neil Armstrong's footprints and other outer space heritage, the Artemis Accords actually, you know, specifically address preserving outer space heritage, um, and that's a goal and a, and recogn a recognized need. But it fundamentally, it says that uh, the idea will be to establish kind of multinational standards. So there's not a prescriptive rule about protecting outer space heritage in even the Artemis Accords, which are more detailed than some of this other guidance. Um, and I think that that's something that will evolve over time. 
And part of the trick is getting a sense of what the actual mining resource extraction activities are going to be to get a sense of how they're to be regulated. Um, I think the expectation is that if someone goes to the moon and digs a hole, uh, that mining company will backfill the hole and put it back to, as you say, under SMACRO, approximate original contour. Um, but there's no strict requirement to do that yet. And the hope is that those protection standards will evolve over time and eventually you know, become part of a more formalized set of uh, rules and regulations. Um, but again, you're talking about you know, parties across a number of state jurisdictions, and uh, it'll just be a matter of time as those things develop. There's nothing in place right now that will impose uh, strict environmental protection standards uh, at this stage in the development. Which brings me to a question about uh, about this sort of confusion or this developing area of law creating some uncertainty. And of course, I have to bring in Elon Musk because we can't have a conversation about uh, about these issues without bringing in Elon Musk. And I want to talk about Starlink, which uh, provides satellite internet access. Uh, it's, I believe it's an internet constellation, SpaceX developing. And I've seen the terms of service, which has been pointed out to me, and I'm, I have to read this particular provision to our audience. For services provided on Mars or in transit to Mars via Starship or other colonization spacecraft, the parties recognize Mars as a free planet and that no Earth-based government has authority or sovereignty over Martian activities. Accordingly, disputes will be settled through self-governing principles established in good faith at the time of the Martian settlement. So to use a legal term of art, what? Yes. Do you uh, have any commentary on this? Yeah, 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 good question. At least under the existing legal framework, uh, this clause is not quite right. It's not effective. The, the whole idea is that, at least for all the signatories to the Outer Space Treaty, um, the idea is that principles of international law do apply to activities in outer space, uh, and that includes all celestial bodies, including uh, Mars. So under the existing framework, the Outer Space Treaty, uh, Mars is subject to international law and would be subject to things like the Outer Space Treaty um, and other principles that develop over time that become either part of established international law through a treaty or through customary international law. Um, you know, that said, um, that's an interesting question of, okay, if that's your law, how do you enforce it? And if there's a colony on Mars that decides that they want to be self-governing and try to break free uh, of the shackles of earthbound international law, um, that could evolve over time. Um, but right now, this provision would be inconsistent with how we think about the governance, uh, how law applies in outer space, which is through uh, principles of international law. And thank you for that, Scott. And of course, if uh, Mr. Musk would like to provide the counter argument to that, I'm certain we can uh, arrange for a follow-up podcast and invite the both of you back on. Now, yeah, I, I, I do understand that uh, he's having his general counsel draft a constitution for Mars. Um, so we'll wait to see what that looks like. And I hope it addresses environmental protection, which would uh, give us more fodder to continue this discussion. Now, I, I'd like to talk about some current developments for the space mining industry, just because this is just such an exciting area. And uh, Julia, you might want to take this one. I'm, I'm curious about what 
the current developments are, if there's any comments you have on efforts underway within Congress or the, the new Biden administration. And I'm also curious because you talked about the International Seabed Authority for the deep sea, if there's any possibility of potentially in the future an international regulatory body for outer space. I think I'll actually let Scott handle um, the bulk of this question because he's more up to speed than I am. But I, I will just repeat what I said about planetary protection being somewhat of a hot button issue and one that I expect, um, you know, a lot of policies and, and potentially binding regulations to be um, coming out of in the near future. Yeah, and I'll talk a little bit about what's happening in the new administration. And the one thing I would note right off the bat is that the United States continues to sign up countries to the Artemis Accords. It's still entering into bilateral agreements based on that framework. Uh, it may be one of the few areas where uh, the Trump administration and the Biden administration are aligned in using the Artemis Accords as a way to establish uh, a framework for future resource development in outer space. Um, and that's significant. Uh, there's not a, a break in the fundamental push on that front. Um, that said, the Biden administration has a slightly different focus within uh, NASA. The 2022 budget uh, for NASA is kind of soft on the Artemis program and the idea of a permanent lunar base. Uh, the funding has been diminished. That will probably extend the timeline uh, in which uh, those programs may actually be fully implemented. Um, and there's also an effort within the Biden administration to refocus NASA on doing research on climate change and using the information we can gather from outer space to really push that forward. Uh, the other significant change which is underway or at least under consideration uh, is to uh, change the law to allow cooperation between NASA and the Chinese uh, space agencies. As I mentioned, neither Russia nor China are interested in signing the Artemis Accords. Russia and China have recently entered into a cooperative agreement to develop a permanent moon base. Um, and so there's a bit of competition between the United States and the signatories to the Artemis Accords and this Russian-Chinese venture to develop a moon base. And neither of them are interested in signing the Artemis Accords. So there's a competition on the ground, on the ground being the ground on the moon, but that also means there's a legal framework competition. You know, how are people going to act uh, under that level of activity? Um, right now, there are 72 countries that at least claim to have a space program. 11 countries have launch capabilities. Uh, the point of that being, the United States is not alone. It doesn't necessarily have the dominant position uh, in outer space exploration, or if it has it now, it may not keep it. And so um, if we back away, from you know, pushing the framework forward and really being proactive, uh, it could be that uh, the United States will be left behind on that front. So it'll be interesting to see how that evolves and whether uh, the commitment of the Biden administration to not just sign the Artemis Accords, but actually implement them and push them forward uh, will allow the U.S. to you know, really maintain a, a, a lead position on resource development uh, on the moon first. And I will say, you know, the moon's where the resource development is going to occur, occur first. There's a lot of interest in establishing a permanent moon base. And the best way to do that, uh, as Julie said, it's very expensive to take things like water and fuel and put them on a rocket and put them into outer space. If you can develop those in outer space or on the moon, uh, the costs are much more uh, pra practical uh, to be able to do that. Um, and then, you know, the idea of kind of something like the International Seabed Authority, um, I don't think so. I, I think that there's a resistance from most spacefaring nations to have um, 
an international agency regulate activities in outer space. Uh, it may evolve toward that in the future, but my early betting at this point is that uh, there'll be some resistance to something like the International Seabed Authority taking a role in governing uh, activities in outer space, including resource development in outer space. So is an area where there's a lot of competition developing and competition does inspire innovation, which results in unforeseen consequences and inevitably regulation. So watch the space, in this case, pun entirely intended. So since we're about time, I'd really like to hear from the two of you advice for aspiring space law attorneys for our audience. How can I learn more about the field and what advice the two of you have besides get a summer associate position at Hogan Levels? Well, that, yeah, that's definitely try to do that first. Um, but yeah, I would say because the body of international space law is pretty small, um, my first recommendation would be to start there. Read the Outer Space Treaty and a handful of other treaties. Um, I think there's four others. Then there's you know, a good good amount of scholarship on Westlaw, and I'm sure on Lexis as well, that's really helpful in understanding the nuances and the history around that international law framework. Um, and I'll also say I, I recently came across a podcast called Unearthed Demystifying Space Mining that has some really useful content, particularly around the sort of commercial and technical aspects of space mining. Um, and I also think it does a good job at presenting different viewpoints and perspectives on space exploration and resource development um, in general. So that would be my advice. Yeah, I would also note uh, that June 30th is Asteroid Day. Uh, it's a UN sanctioned uh, day to celebrate and learn about asteroids. Uh, and there's usually a very interesting program that you can find even after June 30th uh, to, to watch and they get some of the leading uh, authorities on uh, asteroids and the development of asteroids uh, to talk about them. It's really kind of a fascinating program. And, and I will say there's also a growing uh, series of symposia, seminars, and um, uh, other academic and uh, commercial uh, programs that you can participate in, you know, given in uh, this kind of pandemic era, a lot of them are free and online, and there's just tons of resources. Uh, and it's a growing area where it's getting more and more attention uh, right now. So lots of opportunities there. Wonderful. Thank you both so much, Scott and Julie. This this was just so much fun. And we'll link in the show notes to Law of Environmental Protection so you can check out Scott and Julia's chapter on space resources. And where exactly can our audience learn more about the cutting edge work the two of you are doing? Yeah, so um, the Energy and Natural Resources group, which is the group that Scott and I are part of, um, publishes a mining newsletter, which is published typically quarterly, if I'm not mistaken. And we frequently publish um, updates on the, the regulatory side of space mining. Um, we also have a chapter in the handbook on space resources to be published by Springer that will be forthcoming relatively soon, I believe. Anything I'm missing, Scott? Well, I just mentioned uh, the Rocky Mountain Mineral Law Foundation is doing a domestic mining program. Uh, in Scottsdale uh, in October of 2021. It'll be our first live program we've had uh, since the pandemic, so we're very excited about that. Uh, and Julie and I will be presenting a paper on uh, space mining uh, at the end of that. So it's interesting, it's a program about mining on the earth and then we get to step at the end and uh, talk about how you can transport that into outer space, which will be fun for us. 
Wonderful. And we'll, we'll link to those on the show notes. And I also want to thank our audience for joining this latest episode of the Environmental Law Institute's People, Places, Planet podcast. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you, so please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.